You are Locked On Timberwolves, your daily podcast on the Minnesota Timberwolves, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, to another Locked On Wolves podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Wow, it was a crazy night of basketball last night. There was a lot going on. Davis was yelling at refs. OKC lost to lost to the uh, the Orlando Magic. But first of all, I should probably welcome on. We have a special guest on today. He hosts the Locked On Clippers podcast. Lucas Han, thank you for coming on and joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Colton. So... I want to get into the Western Conference, kind of trying to make sense of it just over the 20-game mark. But first of all, we should probably talk about what happened last night because not to be outdone by LeBron James, Anthony Davis had to get his first ejection of his career, and he did it in uh, in quite a show. I think you know that you've taken a dip in just in your decision-making when DeMarcus Cousins is the guy saying, whoa, dude, we got to settle down here. Yeah, that was wild, like... I cannot remember Anthony Davis ever being anything close to that. And like, obviously I don't watch the Pelicans nightly, but I don't know, for some reason, the combination of the new beard he's got going on and all of the yelling, it's just like a whole different person. It's very strange to me. Is that, is that part of the workout routine now that they have Rajon Rondo and DeMarcus Cousins that half the practice is dedicated to working on yelling at the refs, do you think? Yeah, or maybe they do like a tutoring thing. So, you know, you've got guys who have a lot of experience in it. So after practice, they can do kind of one-on-one sessions. Maybe they get like local high school refs to come in and be kind of, you know, practice targets. You know what? They're very good at it. So whatever they're doing, they're, uh, they're very diligent and they, they keep it up and they go at it no matter, no matter what anybody else tells them. That was crazy. Look for other teams to copy that model in the future. <laughs> yeah, it's really working out for them. That was crazy. Uh, OKC... Losing to uh, the Orlando Magic was insane. The Detroit Pistons put up 131 points. Their highest total before that was 122 against the Timberwolves, which is not great. But they put up 131 points. It was just a weird night of basketball. When I was watching basketball, I was sitting back, and it seemed like a weird night of basketball. And then the Lakers went toe-to-toe with the Warriors and took them to overtime and almost won that game, just got edged out by four points, and that kind of was the perfect nightcap for how the entire evening had gone in basketball. Yeah, it was, it was definitely one of the stranger one of the stranger nights. And obviously, you know, a lot of stuff happens. They say, like, you know, that's the reason they play the games and everything, but a lot of stuff going on. It's been a weird season, honestly. It's, there's been a lot of just quirky stuff going on, I feel like. I don't, I don't know if maybe that's just a... I always feel like, so I, I feel this way generally that in the first couple months of the season, everyone is always saying, oh, this season is so weird. And I'm like, come on, every season is a little weird. But for some reason this year, I'm like in on it. It feels like there's a lot of injuries. It feels like there's a lot of teams kind of not performing how we expect them to perform in terms of like Oklahoma City being at 8-12 and 12 is really shocking to me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I feel like this has been a exceptionally strange like first fourth of the season this year. No, you're definitely right. And this year too, I think the one of the 
dip, biggest differences I feel when I'm I'm looking at the season as a whole is I feel like there's so many more storylines to dig into. Like usually when you head into an NBA season, there's like those three or four staple stories that everybody's paying attention to. And now when I look at just what is going on this season and everything that's happening, there's so many different things to dissect. You have all the rookies and how they're doing. You have all the trades and looking at how these different players are adapting and, and kind of changing the team that they joined over the summer. And then you yeah, have I, I almost just, just I mean this isn't something I've really thought about before but just listening to you say it that way I wonder if it has to do with how dominant the Warriors are just in that in a in a normal season you know pre this era of Golden State there were always of course several teams contending for the championship and we knew who maybe the three or four or five teams were out of the 30 that were legitimate threats and those were the ones who we focused most of our storylines on and maybe there's a couple things here or there about a superstar having a great season or, you know, what um, a young emerging rookie around the league. But the majority of the narrative focus was on just a handful of teams. It's almost like because the Warriors are so dominant at the top and we just kind of assume, even if they're not playing exceptionally well right now, that they're going to get there and they're going to be fine and they're going to win the championship. That sort of shuts down that like contention narrative where we're focusing so much at the top of the league and it really opens up to dig into the storylines around the rest of the NBA. And I think because the Warriors are so dominant, this is something we've seen, I mean, especially, I think, from the Clippers' perspective in the last few years, because a team that is normally get, like you know a playoff team who you might think would have a chance to win the championship has been kind of shut down to 0% chance because of the Warriors, it's put a lot of pressure on the organization and the roster and the fan base, which can kind of crack you know, create cracks and you get new narratives out of that as well. So I wonder if, you know, there's a lot of talk about how the Warriors being so good is bad for the league. And it's just maybe an interesting, interesting for me, like, yeah, maybe, you know, assume like that we assume they're going to win the championship every year isn't great for the overall competitiveness, but it does put kind of a microscope on everything else going on in the NBA. Well, and let's, let's dive into that a little bit too, because I think what you're seeing somewhat as well and not to say that the eastern conference isn't interesting because you have the cleveland that's the, just the ever churning out storylines and you have boston is a really fun story to watch uh even detroit is one of the surprise teams this year so they're fun to watch but in the west especially when you have this dominant team like the warriors it almost feels like there's these other teams that are either really thriving under the pressure of trying to put together a roster that can really compete with them and really go toe-to-toe with them in the playoffs, or you have teams cracking, and it looks a little bit like the Clippers, the Thunder, those are teams that are cracking under that pressure. The Rockets are a team that are really doing well under that pressure and finding these new ways to expand their their roster and, and to be the most productive they can be. Uh, geez, that just sounded like a Marine there for a second. <laughs> for a second. It just sounded like a military ad. But, uh, yeah, and so... It feels like the West is jam-packed with these storylines that are produced because of how good the Warriors are. What do you? What's your read on just the Western Conference in general so far this season? Because I think it's been fascinating watching, particularly that half of the NBA. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, the, I know there's even some talk this year about like the East is you know winning more games in the West this year um, and and playing better overall. But it just seems to me that the West is just richer and deeper in in storyline and narrative power and even though the east has won a lot of like head-to-head games so you look at teams records like a team like the clippers is three and six against the east and seven and five against the west which 
should tell you that the West is overall a little bit weaker. But it, I don't know. It just feels to me like there's a lot. I, I really agree with you here. There's a lot more to unpack with the way these different teams in the West are going. In the East, it feels like a lot of the teams, you know, that are in like the mediocre to good range are just kind of there. But maybe, maybe it's just teams that, that I am more used to looking at or know a little bit more about. But it seems like you look through the West at like, you know, Minnesota and Denver and New Orleans and Utah and Oklahoma City, all these teams in the middle range just have a lot more intrigue to me than Indiana, Milwaukee, Washington, the Knicks, Miami, teams like that. Well, and there's that added factor, too, of honestly, the problem that the East has, I think, is they have those teams at the top, but then they have a bunch of mediocre teams, and then you kind of know who the bad teams are, right? Like the Hawks are a bad team that you don't have to worry about. And it doesn't really feel like there's going to be a team at the end of the season in the East that gets left out of the playoffs that you're looking at and saying, oh, you know what? That would have been really cool if they had gone to the playoffs. Whereas in the West, there's going to be one or two teams that don't make it to the playoffs, and you're looking at them and thinking, geez, how did they fall apart? Or you're thinking, oh my goodness, they just barely missed that push, and they should really be in the playoffs because they're going to make for a really good series. And so that's, I think, part of it is that that race that you get that's right out of the gate. You, you feel like most of these games are a little bit important just because it's going to come down to a few games to get into either being in the playoffs at all or between that eight and six seed, I think are going to be only a couple games. And so that's why as much as you hate to say in an 82 game season, that all the games are important for, I'm looking at like the Timberwolves and most of these games kind of are important. If you want to make the playoffs for the first time in so many years, and you want to actually not get bumped out by a team like the the trailblazers who seems to stick around and end up with the eighth seed every year. You you gotta force those teams out, or you gotta you gotta push out a team like the Grizzlies or something like that. And so, kind of all these games are ending up being a little bit important. Yeah, and I also think maybe a little bit in the West, just because the Warriors are are gonna you know most likely be the number one seed, it's almost like a race for seven spots, which just kind of tightens the you know tightens the straps a little bit, puts just a little bit more pressure on those middling teams. Um, you know, potentially teams that are going to be in that four to seven range, Portland, Minnesota, Denver, New Orleans, Utah, the Clippers, Oklahoma City. You got seven teams, instead of, fight, instead of seven teams fighting for five spots, you basically got seven teams fighting for four spots because the eight seed is like a foregone conclusion sweep in the first round. So, you know, I think a lot of these teams probably feel like in a 2-7 series against the Rockets, they could be competitive. Maybe that sense will fade if Houston keeps being so dominant as the season goes on. Yeah, I was just, just about to how- ask you, is is Houston in that range almost where they're almost like the Warriors where if you're the Nuggets, do you really think that you can win even a game against Houston the way they're playing right now? Are they close to that Warriors range where it's almost it's almost a foregone conclusion that both those teams will sweep in the first round? No, I wouldn't say that at this point. I, I mean, if Houston keeps on winning 81% of their games and dominating everyone in the league and when you know their differential stays at 11 or even moves even higher you probably feel that way going into the playoffs but i think the reality of it is that i mean the clippers last season going into thanksgiving were thir- were 14 and 2 and you know um the rockets are 17 and 4 right now so that's pretty comparable and obviously we saw the clippers had a couple injuries you know they didn't stay as hot as they were early in the season. Some of their role players cooled off, and they ended up being more in the middling range. I think Houston this year is probably better than the Clippers were last year. I don't think that that's much of a stretch to say on paper. But I, I'm not convinced through 21 games that they're going to 
win 80% of their games all season long. I think with the Warriors, it's because of that multi-year run. Um, and just on paper, even though the Rockets are, are a great team on paper, I think the Rockets are like your normal level of great team. You know, you're like 60-62 win, one or two seed that, that you get every year in, in both conferences. The Warriors are, just for the last few years, they and I, you know, I'm sure you feel this way too, they're just different than that. They're on like a transcendent level where they don't, they don't fit into the mold of like your average great team that you are going to get one or two of every year. This feels like something kind of unique and generational and, you know, maybe not even, maybe not even generational, maybe historic in this moment in time. Oh, definitely. It, well, it's, it's part of that too of they're definitely a trend center. It's kind of like, I remember the, the new England Patriots offense when they were the, one of the first teams to really start utilizing the, the tight end that could block and pass catch and how they would utilize those and just destroy teams through the middle of the field because they had this guy who you would bring in on a, a blocking on a blocking formation, and then they'd all of a sudden be sprinting down the seam and catch a pass. It's kind of like that with the Warriors, where there's this new kind of thing, and everybody knows that the three-point line is out there, and everybody kind of uses it, but then they come in, and they're just dominant on the three-point line, and they're trend-setting, and now you see so many teams upping the amount of three-pointers they're taking, and you, you have just kids in AAU wanting to only jack up threes and they're kind of changing basketball a little bit here with the way they're playing the game. And so that's what makes it so hard if you're a team in the West is that you have to play that team that's doing all these crazy things throughout the course of a season and is this this juggernaut on offense. that and Their defense is really good too, but it almost doesn't matter because you know that you have to put up X amount of points against them and it's hard to get to that number. Yeah, I, I mean, I... I've said this, you know, for a long time because the Clippers, I mean, everyone has struggled against the Warriors in the last few years, but the Clippers have struggled more than anyone else just because there was kind of that rivalry there before Steve Kerr took over. And so the Warriors, you know, it seems like the Lakers can catch the Warriors asleep, you know, every year, every couple of years, but the Warriors are never asleep against the Clippers. And a lot of times, you know, the frustration from the fan base will really come down to, I get a lot of comments from Clippers fans saying, oh, why aren't they playing harder? And it's like, because, because they're really, it's hard to point out something that, that is reasonable to expect them to do better. Like, you can't say, oh, this guy missed the defensive rotation. You make all the rotations, but they move the ball so well and they have so many good shooters that they're going to get a great shot that they're going to hit at a high percentage anyway. And so you can't point to something like, simple schematic fix like maybe some teams you you know you lose a game and you look back and you say well if they'd started switching that pick and roll or you know so-and-so got hot in the post if they'd been doubling him from the second quarter instead of waiting until the fourth then he wouldn't have finished with 35 points or whatever but the Warriors it just doesn't feel like there is really any way to scheme to actually beat them other than you know hope they miss some shots and you make some so yeah I think it changes the game but I think it's it's also difficult because yeah, I mean, that's where you look to um, kind of like cha- in the sense of changing the game, instead of changing the way your strategy for that night to try to adapt to them, teams are actually changing the way they compose their rosters, which th- I think that's when you know that you've had a really unique impact. Like we saw teams for a, for a stretch there that would always have like a Dwight Howard defender on their team. So there was a lot of really strong seven footers who weren't in the league before and aren't in the league anymore but were on teams in that brief period for te- you know teams that either were in the division with Dwight Howard or felt like they might have to play Dwight's team in the playoffs would go out and get a guy to use as a Dwight Howard specialist. And now we're seeing a lot of teams go after guys um, 
and not just Michael Beasley and Derek Williams, but guys in that mold, like that tweener 3-4 position, who'd sort of been cast aside by the league before, now coming back and saying, these are the kinds of bodies that we need for those matchups with the Warriors if we're in the division with them and we have to play them four times a year, or if we feel like we're going to potentially see them in the playoffs or finals. It's all about those hybrid stretch guys. Uh, we're going to get yeah. to... Uh, we're going to get to the matchup between, do a little bit of an early preview, uh, Clippers versus Timberwolves. But I did want to get into what is going on with the Clippers. So first of all, is public enemy number one Austin Rivers right now in L.A., if you're a Clippers fan? You know, there's a, there's a lot of fans. I would say there's a lot of fans who, who are really upset about, who are really upset at him, who are specifically targeting him. Um, I think it's pretty pretty easy to say as as a rational observer that you know obviously it's not his fault right like for anyone not familiar um blake griffin has a um sprained mcl in his left knee there was a collision in the fourth quarter of the clippers lakers game earlier this week where austin fell over and kind of fell into the side of blake's knee blake went down um he could now he could miss potentially up to eight weeks with that injury and so obviously like the physical action of Austin Rivers falling into Blake Griffin is what caused the injury. But I think it's really, 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 really stupid to say, oh, it's Austin's fault that Blake is hurt. I mean, anyone can fall. Like, there's collisions in basketball. It's a contact sport. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I see a lot of fans who are specifically targeting Austin with that anger. Um, And I, I... to an extent, I get it because, you know, they're fans and they're just lashing out. Um, and the and Austin, Austin anger has been there for a little bit already, too. Yeah, yeah, the Austin anger has definitely, has definitely been there before, and so it's definitely an easy thing for him to scapegoat, scape, to, easy thing to scapegoat him for. Um, I think if Patrick Beverly had fallen into Blake Griffin's knee, I probably wouldn't have heard anyone saying, Patrick Beverly ruined our season. That's because people are scared him. of Patrick Beverly. <laughs> But but I mean you you know no I mean, you're you're it's, right you're right it's like a confirmation by thing but yeah I mean it it really sucks but um I do think it's really unfair you know I I mean anyone who who's played sports knows that that these things happen and it's pretty easy to tell the difference between something that's like dirty and intentional and unsportsmanlike and something that's an unfortunate random occurrence in a contact sport and I there's no reason you know first of all it's his teammate second of all there's no reason to think that they like dislike each other and by no means did it look intentional in any way. So yeah, there, there are people that are angry, but I think it's probably really, I don't know. I just don't like, I don't like the way that, that fans react. Sometimes I understand that like fans are going to be fans, but I don't know. It just seems really, really kind of unfair and icky to me when I, like when I read comments or emails that I get from people talking about Austin Rivers, um, you know, and like really going in on him because like, he stumbled playing defense and fell into a guy. I don't know. It seems it seems extreme to me. I kind of worry about some of these people. <laughs> just the the deep dive Clippers fans that are just so angry about it. Uh, where was Kendall Jenner to help him? Where where was she? Come on now. You know that, what? This is where the blame really I, should be. I think he was, I think he was out at the club with her the next night, so his knee must not be hurt that bad. <laughs> you make the trip with Jenner. That's that's the that's the rule. <laughs> I think. Uh, so now, a little backstory here. I have a, a co-worker who I made a bet with in the first two weeks of the season because he did not like the comments I made about the Oklahoma City Thunder offense. And so I bet him that the Clippers would be a higher seed in the playoffs than the Thunder. 
and now that bet is not looking so good for me. Uh, what has it been like covering the Clippers over this topsy-turvy season, and do you think there's a way, do you think there's a formula for them to kind of pull it out and and start to get on a, a, a winning course again like they started out the season? Yeah, I'm, so I'm, I don't think it's particularly likely, but I can, you know, putting my, like, future glasses on, trying to run a simulation of the rest of the season, I can see a way for them to still have a successful year. It's going to obviously be tricky and difficult, but, I, I mean, I, just briefly, I think the way it would kind of have to go is they should be getting Milos Tedosic and Anil Gallinari back within the next couple of weeks. So if they can find a way to win some games that they shouldn't win, which I think two upcoming games against Minnesota are a great example, if they could somehow steal one of those games, Lou Williams getting really hot, Minnesota having you know like a 9% from three shooting night or something like that, steal a couple games that you're not supposed to win, just you know any win that you can get really on a night-to-night basis helps. You get to the point where Tedos and Gallinari are back, and now you're probably closer to like an average team then right now the Clippers missing four of their five starters are obviously on paper one of the worst teams in the NBA going into their games every night. Once you get at least Tate Osich and Gallinari back, you get a guy back who can run an offense and you get a guy back who can actually score. So it gives you a lot more threats. You can actually start scoring some more points without needing Lou Williams to explode for 40. Um, and then it's just a matter of how competitive can that team be going through December? Because Blake Griffin, the, the release for Blake Griffin said – the recovery time for this injury can take up to eight weeks. And so what that says to me is if the Clippers are playing really badly, they will hold him out for the full eight weeks. But I do think that because it's just, you know, a, a sprained MCL, which is not like that serious of an injury, and because of how frustrated Blake gets, and this guy more than any like repeatedly injured player um, that I can remember in, you know, just in the Clippers in the last several years, gets so frustrated when he gets hurt because he wants to play so badly. So I feel like if you get, you know, a few weeks into this and the team is still managing to hover around 500 and Blake is feeling like he can go, even if he's only at 75 or 80%, he probably will come back well ahead of that eight-week timeline. And from there, you see if you can try to stay healthy through the 2018 portion of the season. I think it's a long shot. I think the most difficult portion is the early part because I think it's going to be hard for them to stay around 500 first just in the next two weeks without Tate Osage and Gallinari. But even then, once those guys come back, I'm not sure that that roster is a 500-level roster. If they can survive this stretch shorthanded and steal some wins, I feel pretty good about when Blake comes back. But if they really struggle and they go something like 4-13 and 13 in the next month, which I think is probably a pretty strong possibility, then they're, you know, then they're toast at that point. Well, and how if those guys come back and they just really start lighting it up, how many games do they have to win where Griffin gets rushed back? Because if I'm the the staff at, at the Clippers, if I'm their athletic staff, this is not a guy I really want to rush back either. If I'm looking at how many injuries he's had and uh, and just how important he is to the franchise, and he just signed the five year deal, so it, how many wins do they have to get? in order to be in that position where they want to get him back before that eight-week mark? So they're, they're at 8-11 and 11 right now. They're three games under five hundred. I would say, and this is before um, Thursday night's game against Utah, um, I would say if they can be within striking distance of five hundred in January, 
then that's when they'll start to look to bring him back. So the beginning of January, the first few days of January will be the end of five weeks. So then, you know, somewhere around January, like 8th or 10th or something like that, will be week six, et cetera. So if you can get into the new year, say, within three or four games of the 500 mark, then you probably start looking at, okay, when can we bring Blake? Like, when can, do we feel good about bringing him back? Yeah, maybe make that, to, all-star, that pre-All-Star push. Yeah, so I, I, think it's, I think the decision probably comes around New Year's because that still will give him, you know, four and a half to five weeks. And then, even at that point, if you're three games under 500 on January 1st, and you say, okay, well, we need to go two more weeks without Blake, you could probably survive those two more weeks. But if you're seven or eight or ten games under 500 on January 1st, then you're saying, we're going to hold him out, and we're going to make sure we're totally safe with this. And at that point, with what their record will be, they probably won't mind losing a few extra games, you know, in terms of just getting a better draft pick. So, yeah, I think that's probably what we're looking at right now. That's how I'm kind of framing it in my head. Where can we be on January 1st? Can we be in a position on January 1st where Blake Griffin can actually come back and help make a push to be competitive to make a playoff spot? If so, then they'll probably try to bring him back a little bit early. If on January 1st you don't feel like you're in that competitive position, then you're not even thinking about bringing him back ahead of that eight-week timeline. Well, and to the flip side of that, do you think there's an X amount of games that the organization has in its head where if they're not at that many wins by that June mark or by around where they think Blake will come back, is that when the... When they decide, you know what, the wheels are totally off this thing. Let's trade DeAndre. Let's fire uh, Doc, and let's just try and start this over again. We still have Blake for another four years. Yeah, you know, I think um, the DeAndre Doc era might be really, really winding down. Um, DeAndre is an interesting case because of the way his contract is. He's expiring, and they haven't. They, you know, they they tried to do an extension, but they haven't really made any progress on it. And so he's a guy who it's probably very likely that no matter how the season goes, um, there's a really good chance that the Clippers will trade him. I think the greater question is going into the trade deadline, are you looking for you know, a really good pick in the upcoming draft and an expiring contract? Or are you looking for some solid rotation pieces who can help you make this playoff push this year? But I would say... Where where I am right now, what my feel, what my gut feeling is that it's maybe fifty fifty, if DeAndre stays with the team or leaves, and I'm not sure that that depends very much on how successful the team is this season. I think even if they're successful, there's a good chance they look for a trade because of those extension talks, and even if they're bad, if they feel, you know if they feel like they have a chance to to keep him um, in in the off season or reach an extension, they might choose to keep him. Doc is a guy who. I just think because of how long he's been with the team and the way that he really led the transition from Donald Sterling to Steve Ballmer, I just don't see them firing him midseason. I think he probably means a little bit more to the organization than your typical coach means to your typical organization. But I also would say I'm, I'm iffy on him returning for next season. Um, probably, I would say, a little less than... 50% chance, uh, maybe like 60, 40, 60 that, that he's gone over the summer and 40 that he would stay going into next year. So I do think that there, there's a pretty healthy chance that you move DeAndre and you let go of Doc and then kind of going into next season, 
you're looking at this like Patrick Beverly, Daniel Gallinari, Blake Griffin, new coach, new pieces from DeAndre, like a really, really revamped Clippers. So that could be interesting to see. No, yeah, it sounds like from uh, the way that we've been talking about it, these these next couple months here could be pretty defining for the for the Clippers. Yeah, I would I would absolutely say so. Interesting. Well, that that will be a fascinating just to see how that turns out and how that all that uh, shapes out for the Clippers. Now getting a little more zeroed in on one specific game, the Timberwolves are going to be facing the Clippers for the first time this season, and I. I was really hoping to see Blake, honestly, just because I think it's I think it's good for the Timberwolves just to to measure up against solid teams. And with Blake on the team, it's a very good Clippers team they'd be facing and see where they're at, kind of in the the top tier of the West. Now they get a little bit of a a little bit of a pass with with Blake out. How do you think the Clippers shape up against the Timberwolves without Blake and on Sunday? Yeah, so I think for for this kind of Sunday Wednesday home and home with the Clippers and the Wolves. It's just like, to me, it, it depends on the the Tadosic Gallinari timeline. So, either way, I think Minnesota is probably favored in both games. But I think that if they hold out Tadosic and Gallinari, then there probably isn't much of a chance for the Clippers to be competitive in these games. When you just look at the talent disparities and the fact that I think the Clippers in general just are going to have a hard time scoring right now because they basically came into the season with six guys who could score. They're four, you know, the four starters, point guard, junior guard, small forward, power forward, and then the two bench guards, Austin Rivers and Lou Williams. And right now they're without all four of those starters, um, the fifth starter being DeAndre Jordan, obviously, who doesn't create a lot of offense. And then those two bench guards are doing everything. And they don't really have other guys that are role players that are explosive or create offense for themselves. So until they get other guys back, I just have a hard time seeing them score enough points to win unless they get one of those lucky crazy nights where Austin Rivers has 33 points or Lou Williams has 40 points. But I don't think that that's something you can necessarily predict happening on, on any given night. So I don't envision these games being especially competitive. Yeah, and when you're – I mean, it's just kind of a natural cause and effect, right? When you're narrowing down the guys who can score on your team, it's really just making it, I know the Timberwolves' defense has – been bad this season but when you're narrowing it down to only a couple guys who are real scoring options that's making it easy pickings for guys like Jimmy Butler to defend those players and uh, just for the team in general to have to to face them uh, if you're looking at the Timberwolves as a someone who covers the Clippers who are you most concerned about for the Timberwolves just in, as far as just this matchup not just in, in terms of the season but just in the matchup against your team, who are you most concerned about on the Timberwolves? I think it's Carl Anthony Towns. I think he's probably, first of all, just in a vacuum, he scares me more than Wiggins or Butler, even though <laughs> Wiggins and Butler are obviously both good players. But I think just the level of talent that Towns has is probably probably scarier to me. But I think the big thing for me is that the Clippers kind of have a collection of, you know, at best average defenders, guys like, Wesley Johnson, Austin Rivers are okay on defense, but not great. Um, and then you have guys like Lou Williams, who's a negative on defense. Um, and then, you know, they have some like second round rookies and D league guys who are playing a lot of minutes. So the defense isn't going to be good. The one guy who is still a plus defender on the team is DeAndre Jordan. And 
I think it's I think they probably can have some nights where they're a passable defensive team with that setup if DeAndre is playing at his best and is active and engaged. But DeAndre is going to be so focused on Towns, and even then he's not going to be able to stop Towns. Most likely Towns is still probably going to get hit. But having DeAndre so focused on Towns means that now you're all of a sudden leaving Wesley Johnson on an island against Andrew Wiggins, and you're leaving Austin Rivers on an island against Jimmy Butler, and you're leaving even Lou Williams on an island against Jeff Teague is a really favorable matchup for the Timberwolves if Jeff Teague is back by these games. So, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think Towns is the scariest one just because Towns is a guy who the Clippers probably lose every individual matchup and that might be their their best individual matchup just because DeAndre is their best player left standing. But because Towns takes DeAndre away from helping everyone else out, I think that's probably going to be kind of pulling out the, um, I don't know what metaphor I'm reaching for, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to make everything collapse once you pull DeAndre out from helping everyone else. And then everyone else on the Wolves is going to be able to have big nights. And I do like, too, the idea of like a guy like Austin Rivers trying to guard Jimmy Butler because... Once Jimmy Butler feels like he can force a, a team into into pulling double guys on him, he's just going to look for guys like Teague and Wiggins from outside. He's just going to try and drive in and get players to collapse on him so he can dish it back out to Wiggins because that, that really works well for this team is that, that combination of Butler and Wiggins playing off of each other's talents. And Wiggins, for his part, is just play, been phenomenal scoring. He's put up uh, – Twenty or 12, 12 now, twenty point games in twenty one starts, and so he is looking phenomenal scoring. He's been a lot better on defense as well. So that's a guy. If I'm looking at these two games here on Sunday and Wednesday against the Clippers, he's one of the guys I think could really go off because when they're looking to double guys, I think he's kind of one of the guys who gets left free on the edge a lot. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think you know Austin Rivers is a, is like a capable defender, but he was a lot better as a defender when he was coming off of the bench for 18 minutes a night and bringing that kind of energy and driving to the rim. I think this is probably pretty fair to say, you know, across the board, you take someone from an 18 minute a night game where they aren't being asked to do much on offense. And then you put them into like a 36 minute a night role where they're being asked to create a lot of offense and the defense is going to drastically drop off. So I think he's probably going to be even, even more so than the Wiggins Wesley Johnson matchup. I think that Butler Austin Rivers matchup is, is probably a place where the Clippers get really torched I'm not sure it's so much necessarily Austin's fault, but it's just kind of the reality of, first of all, Butler being so much better than Austin, um, and then where Austin's exerting his energy offensively, and then the fact that they don't have a lot of resources in terms of team defense to come and help him out. Well, yeah, that's the it's the you're pitting the role player against uh, an all star, and that's just it's not a knock on Austin. That's just what's going to happen. Is there's kind yeah, of no avoiding it. It was the same thing when they played the when they played the Warriors and Austin had a bad night against Clay Thompson, and I was like, "What did you like? What do you expect?" <laughs> I mean, starters have bad nights against Clay. Yeah, it's not like the Clippers could have said, "Oh, we're going to play Sundarius Thornwell instead," and then he wouldn't have done so badly against Clay. It's like Clay Thompson is is really good, and I think that's the situation the Clippers are going to be in. Austin's going to play poorly tomorrow night, and people are going to say, "Oh, why is Austin starting? Why is Austin playing so many minutes?" Yeah, the reality is Jimmy Butler's just really good. The Clippers don't have the personnel to handle a guy like him. So even if you had, you know, if you put in Jawan Evans or C.J. Williams or Sundarius Stornwell or any of the other guards the Clippers have left available on the bench or in the D League, it's just not going to, um, it's not going to make a difference for them. 
Yeah, they're they're injured to the point where they're starting to wear out the the depth that they had going into the season, and that's that's just yeah. what happens when you're playing. Like you said, when you're playing a sport, there there's plenty of contact in. That's that's going to happen, and it's just kind of luck of the draw at this point. Uh, before we head out here, could you give the Timberwolves fans one Clippers player that maybe they don't know about that could be a problem? Maybe could put up some points. Somebody that they wouldn't expect. Not like a, a Lou Williams, who is obviously they're going to look to for offense. Yeah, I mean Lou Williams actually think will probably surprise you because he's surprised me this season. He's much more than than what I had given him credit for in the past in terms of just being a bench scorer. I'm not sure that there's a guy on the Clippers who I really can say I think might have like a big scoring game. But one guy who um, there, there's been quite a few actually of their role players who have been remarkably solid on an individual level with all these injuries. It's just that when you collect, collectively add it together, you're looking at a team with a lot of solid eighth and ninth men. <laughs> one guy who, who maybe to look out for is Montrez Harrell, because this could really go kind of, I think, very good or very poorly with Blake out. The Clippers are actually looking at Montrez Harrell to start at power forward in his absence, at least in some matchups. And against the Wolves, the way that they start um, starting... Taj Gibson. Taj Gibson, yeah. Taj Gibson seems like that's another game where the Clippers will go with the second big guy instead of going small with the three-guard lineup. And Montrez is just a really high-energy guy, and he has had some impactful bench performances where he'll come in and have like 12 points and six rebounds in you know 14 minutes or something like that. So... If the energy level is right, if the matchup is right, um, if the Timberwolves defense isn't being especially attentive to him, then it is a it is a game where he could potentially you know just finish a lot on the break, get a lot of dirty buckets on offensive rebound putbacks, and maybe kind of I think he might be the most likely guy to spring for you know a big contribution out of the Clippers supporting cast outside of Austin Rivers, Lou Williams, and DeAndre. I don't see it outside their own possibility for Montrez to have like you know, an 18.8 rebound night or something like that where he's just very active around the basket. All righty, you, you heard it here first. Look out for him. Uh, anything you would like to plug here before we head out? Um, yeah, you guys, if you like the words that I speak about the basketball, <laughs> uh, my podcast is the Locked On Clippers podcast. You can read what I write at clipsnation.com. My Twitter is at Lucas J. Hamm. Excellent. Definitely go check out all of those things, make sure that you're giving him the love and, and the support that he deserves and check out his his writing and his Twitter and his podcast, Locked on Clippers. Awesome. This was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. He's Lucas. I'm Colton. And this has been another Locked on Wolves podcast, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. You are Locked on Timberwolves. Your daily Minnesota Timberwolves podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.
Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.